The first heading that we get is that spiritual privileges are no guarantee of success. So as we're talking about in our Christian liberty, exercising our Christian liberty, deciding to not exercise our Christian liberty, our key verse tonight is verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And make the over, overarching point here that experience must be balanced with caution. Paul talks here in verses 1 through 4 about the, the privileges that the old covenant saints had. These Jewish people, God's people. But they weren't a guarantee of success. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The Jewish people enjoyed great spiritual privileges, and he, he alludes to some of them here. The verse number one, they were all under the cloud. The cloud was their symbol of God's protection. The cloud was God's means of guidance for them as they traveled on this journey that God had them on. Uh, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 105 verse 39, he spread a cloud for covering and fire to give light in the night. He also says here that they all passed through the sea. The, the children of Israel were faced with certain destruction as the Egyptians were you know, nipping at their heels trying to keep them from leaving as their uh, slaves there. God made a highway for his people right through the middle of an ocean. He parted the waters of the Red Sea and they walked across on dry ground. And then that same highway became a graveyard for the Egyptians. So God's people have always been able to experience great privilege. And certainly we see that here in these first verses. William MacDonald wrote here on verse number one, he says, as far as privilege was concerned, they all enjoyed divine guidance and divine deliverance. Verse 2 then, Paul continues noting, he says, you were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So point being that Israel was one with Moses. They were united with him and all that he did for them and for their physical salvation. Now we understand this under the new covenant, that Christian baptism signifies the union of the believer with Christ. Paul uses the language of baptism here in comparing the Israelites and the Corinthians. So in this, Moses then becomes a type of Christ. So he's using some typology here. Uh, this is the best kind of typology. When you have the New Testament pointing back to the Old Testament and telling you that this was a type of this, then that is correct biblical typology. When you have a guy with crazy hair, or any preacher really, who was telling you there's this type in the Bible that I've just discovered and nobody for all these thousands of years of church history thought of it. That one you got to be, be careful of. I like biblical typology, but only when it's biblical typology, not typology that someone has made up and used some scriptures to defend. But this is for sure one. Moses is the type of Christ. As the Jews were baptized, united with Moses, so is the church with Jesus. Verse 3 says you all ate the same spiritual meat. Verse 4, he says, you all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, what was that spiritual meat that they all ate in the Old Covenant that is being a type for what now the Corinthian church is experiencing under the New Covenant? What do we call that, that the children of Israel ate? Manna, yeah, spiritual meat, meaning it was heaven sent. It didn't mean that it made them spiritual. 
it just meant it was heaven sent meat. Exodus chapter number 16, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Does that just make you happy? Man, I love bread. Any other carboholics in here tonight? It's the best. Warm bread, buttered bread, Krispy Kreme donuts. This is what I'm assuming God rained from heaven for them was some Krispy Kreme donuts. The verse continues, And the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. Did you catch that? God didn't say, I'm going to starve you to see if you'll obey me, to see if you'll follow me even when you're not eating. It's the opposite. So I'm going to make sure you have something to eat every day. You won't have to work for it. You won't have to labor for it. But there are some rules that go around this. You can only go out and gather a certain amount every day. And he tells Moses, I'm going to do this. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. And they can go out and get this much every day. And I'm going to see if they'll obey me in this or if they won't. Kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Paul says, they all ate the same spiritual meat. Then he says in verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. Exodus 17, 6, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there, thou shalt, there shalt come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So they drank this living water that God had provided for them out of a rock. It was sustaining now, this brings our minds to think about the rest of that verse. He says that Christ is the rock. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So there he points out exactly what he is saying here. These are some, some typologies. So Israel enjoyed great spiritual privilege. Paul's point is, so does the church. So do you, Corinthians. So do you, Harpeth Baptist Church. Each reference here is a physical picture of our spiritual privilege that you and I have now in the church. We don't expect God to send manna from heaven, but he's given us the bread of life. We don't expect God to make water come out of rocks, but he has helped us to drink living water so that we might never thirst again. We have great spiritual privilege, but spiritual privileges are no guarantee of success. They should, they should be. They should make it easy. They should make it almost impossible to fail. I mean, God has given us a free gift of grace. He's accounted Christ's righteousness on our behalf. You and I just kind of have to walk forward in that. It couldn't, couldn't have been done much more for us than it has been, but often we still find ourselves failing. And certainly that's what Paul writes here to the Corinthians about. For whatever reason, Israel abused these privileges. So you Corinthians understand that though you have spiritual privilege, you could still be abusing those privileges. So experience must be balanced with caution. Spiritual privileges are not a guarantee of success. The second heading, and this will get us down to verse number 12, and it's our only other heading tonight. Good beginnings do not guarantee the endings. Good beginnings do not guarantee the endings. Verse number five. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Their abuse of the privilege, Israel's abuse of the privilege, it displeased God. Now, if you notice in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, it talks about they all. They all were spiritually privileged. Notice verse number 1. I I don't want you to be ignorant, he says, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Then in verse 2, you have it again. They were all baptized 
unto Moses. Verse 3, they all ate the spiritual meat. Verse 4, they all did drink of that spiritual drink. Now, verse 5, it changes a bit there, doesn't it? But with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now, it should be that it says they all experienced this spiritual privilege from God. They all had this great start. And with all of them, God was well pleased because he set it up to where they couldn't fail. But we find here that even though they had a good beginning, it did not guarantee that ending for them. God was displeased with many of them. They were a people who outwardly showed the sign of the covenant. But inwardly, their hearts did not match what had been done to them outwardly. They failed to recognize that spiritual privilege does not replace the necessity of spiritual and moral reality and correctness. This displeasing of God led them to not be able to enter the promised land. Now that's an important note for us to find here in the church. Now we would say this doesn't mean that there's a chance that the church won't get to heaven. The Bible teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The saved will make their way to God's presence at some point. But we can still displease God on our way to heaven. So for Israel, it was this thing of you're not going to get to enter into your promised land. I would call that a type of the victorious Christian life for the believer. That's a great way to think about it. We sort of live in the land of, you know, the completed word and the Holy Spirit, milk and honey. So this responsibility we have holds even greater weight. It's positively motivated, not negatively motivated. The negative motivation would be you mess this up and you won't go to heaven. God hasn't set us up like that. He said, through Christ, because of Jesus, you're going to heaven. Which is a blessing. But then I, I would like for you to live in that righteousness that I've gifted you. That's a positive motivation. Now, Paul makes the point to the Corinthians, though, that many of them displeased God. MacArthur writes on the idea of God being displeased. He says, this is an understatement. Because of Israel's extreme disobedience, God allowed only two of the men over 19 who had originally left Egypt, Joshua and Caleb, to enter the promised land. All the others died in the wilderness, including Moses and Aaron, who were disqualified from entering the land. And he is right. I mean, Paul, I, I, I don't want to call Holy Spirit-inspired word an understatement, but I get MacArthur's point that we could, under, we could misunderstand Paul's point here, which is... Everybody over the age of 19, save two, even some of the names you know, Moses and Aaron, did not get to enter the promised land because they displeased God in their endings. Now, the rest of these verses, Paul deals with how was it that they displeased God? And this is a great note to us as the church. And I don't preach this to you as doom and gloom, and this is where we are in the world today, which it is where we are in the world today. I preach it to you as a church and say, we have great spiritual privilege. Let's avoid these four things. Let's live to the spiritual privilege and, and guarantee our, our current and our ending. We see idolatry in verse six and seven. It's a thing that displeased God. So verse five tells us there's some things where God was not well pleased. Verse six says, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So he kind of gives this old covenant, new covenant 
um, example here. And, and under the old covenant, what's he talking about in verse 6 and 7? Remember Moses came down off the mountain and what were the people doing? Yeah, they made this golden calf. And, and they were God's people and they were doing it as a sort of a form of worship. But if you really get into what was going on there, um, verse, at the end of verse number 7 there, he says, they sat down to eat and drink and then they rose up to play. So what actually was happening here was they had thrown this feast as like worship to this idol and then they had this riotous party. And adults can figure out what we're exactly talking about there as like a, as a form of worship. It's typical human nature, right? Just sinful, carnal, as awful as we can be. Well, what, what does the world look like around us? This is exactly what's going on in today's world. I mean, just, you drive by Nashville and you think, whew, can't believe that's in public. Can't believe this is going on, but this is, this is sin. And when sin has taken over, you, you just kind of see the death on display, don't you? It's a, it's a horrible thing. So Old Covenant here, what was the idolatry? It, was this, it wasn't just the golden calf. That's the point I want to make to you. See, we often think we're doing all right because we haven't made our own little golden calf and set it up in our houses or in our hearts. Yeah, but is it, are you guilty of like this riotous living that kind of went around that? What does this look like under the new covenant? It's covetousness and materialism. Matthew 6, 24 says, No man can serve two masters. For he either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. Does that mean we can't feast? No, we feasted Sunday, but we did it as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christian family, and we did it to God's glory. There wasn't anything, I mean, unless you were, there wasn't anything that I knew of unholy going on as a part of that. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify therefore your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put these things to death, he says. And all of this up against verse 6 and 7. We shouldn't lust after things like they lusted, the they, the, the old covenant saints. We shouldn't be idolaters, verse 7 says. What did they do? They sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. Verse 8, immorality. So he gives us four things here that displeases God. Idolatry and then immorality. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day. Don't miss this. 23,000. In one day, God took 23,000 of them because of their immorality. I wanted to give you an Old Testament reference for every one of these, but they're just not time. So let's go to Numbers 25. Hold your place here. Go to Numbers 25. And let me just read you this reference. And what you'll see in probably your Bibles right there under the verse have these marked for you. They'll give you the Old Covenant, Old Testament reference for every one of the examples that Paul is giving here. So what's his point? We have spiritual liberty. We have great privilege, but we can't. We've got to be cautious with this. Take heed lest you fall. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Now, here's an example. Numbers 25, verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. Everybody good? Is God the same in the old and the new? He is. He doesn't change. So the next time you wonder within yourself, how could God let this happen? Well, look what God wanted to happen here. These people were being immoral, though they claimed to be his people. And God's way to appease his wrath in regards to this was cut off their heads, let them bake out in the sun, and then I'll turn my fierce anger away from you. These were not the people of Moab. These were the people of Israel. Verse 5, And Moab said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. Now there is a discrepancy there. The New Testament, Paul says 23,000. Here it says 24,000. I don't exactly know the answer to that one there, but it's a lot. You can go back to... Chapter 10, verse 8 of Corinthians. Each one of these instances Paul's talking about here, you find these types of stories. The golden calf instance. Who remembers? How many people died because of that? Anybody? I think it was 3,000. It was either 2,000 or 3,000. We displease God with our immorality. And I would say in our day that it's probably worse and more accessible. Think of technology. These guys, as far as we know, didn't have technology. So they were doing something that displeased God that much without the conveniences to get to the sin that we have today in our lives. So we, we displease Him with idolatry. We displease Him with immorality. And note, these examples aren't pointing to the world's behavior. Christians are quick to say, boy, I can't believe the world's doing this and I can't believe the world's doing that. And the government should do something about it. The politicians should do something about it. And where's God ever dealing with that in the scriptures? He's just saying, if my people, the church, Christians would stop doing these things. That's the thing. Idolatry, immorality. Verse number nine, then, it's just this idea of testing him. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. You remember Exodus 17. Verse 2 says, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? To test God is to determine, to discover whether he can do what he says, especially in the area of sin. Will he do what he says? And here we're, we're learning that is something that just displeases God. Don't tempt him. God is holy. God is sovereign. He is able. And I would say that tonight in the negative sense. You've probably heard this story of, and it's always applied to an atheist who kind of shakes his fist at God and says, if God is real, let him strike me down with lightning. And as he breathes in breath after that last word, a gnat flies in and chokes him to death, right? It's just kind of an idea. 
But Paul applies that logic to the Christians, to the church in Corinth. He says, you're, you're exercising your liberty and you, you have every right to do this because you're under grace, but, but don't do it unto things that displease God. The last thing he gives is grumbling in verse 10. Neither murmur you as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. All right, we got a lot of kids in here tonight. Y'all be honest. How many of you complain sometimes to your parents? Oh, I don't want to. He didn't have to. This tastes bad. I don't want to eat it. What are some other complaints you guys have? What do you think, Sammy? You got a good one? What's a good complaint you give sometimes? You don't know? Aubrey, what's a good complaint? Ah, right? Those are the worst showers? Man, what do you want to do instead? That's wasted time, right? What could you be doing instead of playing in the shower? Oh, sleeping? All right. What do you got, Tom? Um, when someone else gets something and then like, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't I get one of those? Yep. All right, did you figure out one, Sammy? I want to play my Xbox. They didn't get to play. I didn't get to play the PlayStation. Yeah. Anybody else need to share a complaint tonight? I'm figuring out what's happening here. The kids are publicly complaining to you parents. <laughs> Grumbling. You know the old Olaf song. Oh, they grumble on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Grumble on Thursday, too. Woo-hoo. Grumble on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Grumble the whole week through. We're good to grumble, aren't we? Always something that we can grumble and mumble and complain about. What he says here in verse 10, don't murmur like they murmured. Because of their murmuring, they were destroyed of the destroyer. You can read that in Exodus chapter number 12. So then from there in verse 11 and 12, he gives instruction to the church in light of all these things. Verse 11, now all these things happen unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. He says, well, these are types. These are examples. They're written down for our instruction. Now that's interesting. Paul is interpreting Old Covenant text by saying here, the meaning of these events is not just limited to their historical value. They have significance for us in the church today. I mean, he's likely just saying here, God let those things happen so you and I would understand. And I don't want to take that so far that everything that happens in today's world be interpreted that way. We can do that here because Paul said we can do it here, right? Everybody grab that? That's what I was talking about, a bad use of types sometimes. Verse 12 then, he says, we've got to beware of prideful self-confidence. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Spiritual privileges are no guarantee of success. Good beginnings do not guarantee the endings. So our experience, especially our experience with doctrine that leads us to understand grace and Christian liberty, it's got to be balanced with caution. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. Paul is writing to, especially here, the strong believer who thinks he can do something and not be affected by it. This person is in the greatest danger, Paul says here. Of all of the ones who are in danger of falling, of all the ones who are in danger of coming under the disciplinary hand of God, the one who feels the strongest is 
likely the most. And then don't forget, just two weeks back, chapter 8, he said you're also in danger of coming under the hand of God because you become a stumbling block to a weaker. This is good, helpful stuff, isn't it? Under grace, we enjoy the same, if not more, spiritual privilege, liberty, as Israel did. I would say more. And Paul saw through their example, though, putting Israel up against the early church, that that can become an occasion to fall. And so his instruction here is simply, take heed. 